0: Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water how to make sustainable irrigation can water bring peace how do you uh, keep water clean and, and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the u.s what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the Waterline Podcast is an initiative of Israel NewTech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. So check it out for everything you need to know about the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water. Search for Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. All right, guys, this is the last psychedelic research episode for a while. I know that's going to be disappointing to some of you, but there will be more to come in the future. I recorded this as the tour wrapped up. It was the day after the last show, and I don't like dwelling on any one subject too much without exploring some of the other aspects. I think all of this psychedelics are one aspect of life, and we need to understand a lot of other things like exploring why for example next week we'll be exploring uh, we'll be talking a little more about the illusion of explanatory depth which when you apply to something like psychedelics you can understand why people rush to ridiculous judgments without knowing a damn thing so i just wanted to share this uh with you guys i already planned on facing i'm doing a documentary about psychedelics i'm Shouldn't even be sharing this, really, until more things are confirmed, but I'm potentially doing a docu-series about psychedelics. The documentary is absolutely happening. The special is absolutely happening. Don't know exactly when. We're pretty sure in September in Texas, and so I'm covering the field of psychedelics in depth, and I have many interests, as you know, so so I'm I'm using this science podcast for those other interests as well. Um, and i didn 't want psychedelics to monopolize it. It monopolizes it unfairly in the mind because then when I approach people that have like work do research for a government agency say or or have bosses that they need approval before they can be on this podcast, and they look and Oh my gosh there's this person talks about psychedelics we've been getting sponsorship recently reaching out to get sponsorship and there's been certain companies that, like see oh my oh my goodness but how are we going to sell our weird new socks made out of this special string that no one actually needs and it's kind of a scam that we're getting people to waste money on how are we gonna uh, we can't associate our product with something that is being used to treat ptsd and veterans goodness no what about the children the children it's so absurd and so ridiculous there's, there's all these considerations that people need to make before coming a guest on my show. It's not just psychedelics. There's, a, there's other people, because I'm a comedian, people think I'm going to make fun of them. There's a million different things. It can be really difficult to get guests sometimes. But this psychedelic angle has been so frustrating considering what we now know, which is that, in my opinion, psychedelics are one of the most cutting-edge fields of science we are in a renaissance it wasn't until 2010 there was a big paper um, published on psilocybin that really ramped up um, the psychedelic research and rejuvenated it and it's gone in in seven years and it's grown into something that you know johns hopkins is doing tons of incredible stuff and, and maps is really uh, they're not the only organization but they're the rock stars out there they're blasting open the doors going through they're getting fda approval they're they're going to get mdma legalized for clinical use as we've heard before or we're going to hear more about today on this podcast incredible incredible stuff i think they are literally going to change the world and i bring all this up because the little bit of stigma that i have to work around is their life they have to deal with this day in and day out they're raising their own funds Look, they're not asking me to say this. They're not giving me any money. They sponsored my tour. They didn't give me money for the tour. All that meant it was this cross promotional sponsorship. I wouldn't have taken money from them if they offered. I believe in what they do, and they believed that I was spreading a positive message. Um, and and by the way, if I'm overselling this stuff and these things are super dangerous in some way that I'm not seeing, and I'm and I'm not giving enough stupid disclaimers you let me know please point out my my cognitive biases i i think you've come along with me on this journey and you probably see things or have at least been opened up to things enough through some of these experts that i've had on and it's just ridiculous what what this field is up against so i've as this is the last psychedelic research um episode in a while I want to really, really encourage you guys. I know I've been asking for money and talking about I broke and everything else and we're, we need to monetize the podcast. But ultimately, the big picture is I think that what organization like MAPS are doing is really creating big change in the world. And the world needs some progress. It doesn't need to go backwards. Like some people are... Talk in from government officials talking about marijuana being as dangerous as heroin and ridiculous stuff. We need to move forward, plain and simple. And this is potentially a tool for doing that. And anything that you can do to get involved, even just to research more, to learn more, to sign up for the MAPS mailing list and any other psychedelics. There's, there's a million different organizations. Support them all but if you can give money to them to to support what they're doing and to get this phase 3 off the ground the sooner they raise the money for it the sooner MDMA becomes legalized for clinical use the sooner psilocybin becomes legalized for clinical use and the dominoes start to fall and people start to wake up it often sounds really arrogant when you talk about the, the i you know you hear it from all sides of of like the political, wake up sheeple, I get it, but these things can be really transformative, and really healing for a lot of people, not just, like maps are, you know, help people with PTSD, I, I see a bigger picture than that, you know, how much incredible material that I've written, because of psychedelics, how many ideas that I would have never had, I don't think I'd be doing this podcast without psychedelics, they're important to me, and they're important to my life, so it's just irritating when I hear Crap from like potential sponsors, which is exactly why I didn't want sponsors because I don't want sp- censorship. And by the way, I'm not making this decision to stop doing psychedelic episodes. I had already landed on this, which is even more irritating because if I would have known I would have got this much pushback, I would have just doubled down and done more psychedelic episodes because I don't like being told what to do. But I just really wanted to one more time emphasize a lot going against this. Do what you can to support it if this is something that you're passionate about. And Speaking of things that you can do to help, I have a Here We Are survey. Surveys can be fun to fill out. They can also be a little bit of a pain in the butt sometimes. But we've created a nice little survey for the Here We Are podcast. Now that we're starting to get the resources to put more into this, I need to find out who you guys are and more about you. And this podcast is going to start getting better. Uh, in a hurry, and part of it is we're going to be getting better guests and we're also going to be understanding the audience right now i don't have a clue who you guys are other than if you come to my show and you meet me afterwards and we have a conversation which is always awesome when I do get to meet you guys in person but overall i don't know who's listening i don't I don't have a great sense of where you're listening from. make sure and sign up for laughable it will help me with that but if you go to the Here We are podcast page the survey that you will fill out will help me better understand who you guys are it will give me a lot more leverage with sponsors because i have some dream sponsors things that i've promoted on this show for free before that i really believe in you know there's gonna be some that i'm gonna make some compromises and be like okay this is like a useful thing and okay this product's but there's some that i absolutely like really really believe in that i'm trying to land that's the stuff that i want to be selling because i'm now realizing that we can move this show forward in a bigger way so please go to the here we website fill out this helpful survey it won't take long and it is at this point the best thing that you can do uh, for the podcast enjoy today's episode are
1: we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all
0: it's immensely bizarre here we are welcome to the here we are podcast everybody thank you Asheville, for coming out my guest today, I am so excited. They drove a long ways to be here, and I am incredibly grateful. We have the lead researchers for the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Please welcome Annie and Michael Mithofer, everybody. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for coming. And Let's see. You live in Charleston, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. All the way from Charleston. Sweet. So, just to set this up, and and past listeners have already heard this. I'm sure many of you know, but just for anyone that doesn't know, can you explain what the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies is? Do you want to go
2: first? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a it's really a remarkable nonprofit organization that um, we uh, hooked up with in in the year 2000 is when we started working on on what we're doing now. But uh, Rick Doblin, who is the founder and president of MAPS, started MAPS back in 1984 because he saw that uh, he was very interested in MDMA uh, as a therapeutic tool, and he was actually going to be a, get his PhD in clinical psychology and be an MDMA therapist, but he saw that MDMA was about to become illegal, so he decided he'd better... Uh, approach it through a, uh, you know, better change the law before he could be a, an MDMA therapist. So he uh, started MAPS, to, and the purpose is to bring MDMA and other psychedelics through the regulatory process to become legal medicines. So it's really been a great organization to work for, um, work with, um, we're not actually employees of MAPS, but we're full-time MAPS researchers now um and the nice thing about it is it is non-profit you know mdma and these other compounds can't be patented anymore uh they're long off patent if they ever were on patent mdma was patented in 1914 but uh, the other thing is they've gone to great lengths to make sure that neither maps nor anybody else can get used patents for this kind of work so it's it's all in the nonprofit realm everything uh, you know, nothing about our research participants, but all the other information is available free on the web. Our treatment manual is on the maps.org, along with all the protocols. So it's been really a pleasure and they've been a great support in allowing us to work on this re- research for over 17 years now. So I've, uh, I believe this
0: is something like the fifth episode that we've had with, uh, with, um, people that work with maps. And this is like, well, I don't know because I'm I'm uh, a little new to this myself, but this seems like an especial an especially exciting time for you guys with some of the news that you got last year with um uh, being where exactly is it? I was like touching base. It, it's been approved for stage three trials, or is it is stage three already starting? Where are you at right now?
2: Yeah, it's well, it is a little technical. It's not exactly as you say, but essentially it is. They're called um, phases of FDA research. And the final one before applying for approval is phase three. So what we've been doing for the last uh, 17 years is working on phase two trials. And now MAPS has finished six of those. And they're all, all the... Ones I'm talking about are for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. So we had a meeting with FDA in in November, and we we don't have actual formal approval of the protocol. That's coming soon. But what we got was approval to proceed to phase three without doing any other study. So it means the phase three protocol will be approved soon, and and we'll be starting that um, this fall. The first. Section of it and then the main part next year. So it's pretty remarkable and very rare for a nonprofit to bring a drug through the development stages to phase three trials. Um,
0: and so, uh, by the way, I, we had a lunch quick before this. Um, you guys have been married for how many years now?
3: 44? 44.
0: 44 years, everybody. Wow. Longer than I've been alive, and how? <laughs> how did? How,
3: Ancient, right?
0: So, I I want you to share a little bit about how um, you each uh, got involved in this in the first place. I I know a little bit from talking to you uh, offstage, but it's a really interesting story how how you came to how you came to get here. Annie, come on. Okay. Yeah. We got to hear from you.
3: Well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we had our own experiences um, in the, for me, late 60s. And then um, when Michael finished working in the ER, he worked for 10 years and did a psychiatric residency. Um, We both went and did holotropic breathwork in California and were certified in holotropic breathwork and we started working together in a psychiatric practice seeing people um, together sometimes and leading breathwork groups for about 10 years and so out of that work we saw how um, that was really really helpful for people with all kinds of you know um, psychiatric problems but also just um, self um, exploration and um, we were always looking for other things to do to help people with any kinds of issues and um, we heard about um, some studies being done in St. Kitts with Ibogaine and um, we knew about the MDMA work that had been done before it was uh, made illegal Um, and how many therapists and psychiatrists had been using it before it was made illegal so that's kind of how we Became in, interested in um, how Michael started talking to Rick about doing some study here in the United States.
0: Um, so, uh, quick, I'm going to edit this out. Are, are you hearing a, a tinniness, a little bit of feedback with Annie? Is there any, you're not hearing that? Is she sound okay? I'm hearing something. There's a little, a little like a hum. If you're, maybe, I don't know, turn her down. No, it's something else. Um, maybe, maybe hold it like a little further from there. I don't know. Okay. Is it, are you guys noticing that? Okay. I'm just overly sensitive. Okay. Okay. So, um, by the way, how many of you in here have ever done, um, uh, holotropic, uh, breath work? A couple people. Uh, a couple people. I, yeah. I haven't myself either. Can, can you guys talk a little, a little bit about that? We, we've actually mm-hmm. never talked about it on this podcast before, sure. so this is one of the things I'm the most excited to hear about. And I'm doing my first session um, next Tuesday in Boulder, so I'm especially excited to hear about this.
2: Yeah, Humboldt-Rabby-Breathwork is, is a very powerful technique that doesn't involve any drugs. Um, it was developed by a psychiatrist, Stan Stan Grof, Stanislav Grof, who was one of the foremost original LSD researchers, first in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia and Prague, and then later at Johns Hopkins. And, um, you know, Stan recognized the potential of these compounds and did uh, several thousand LSD therapy sessions during those years when it was legal. Um, and then, you know, that all ground to a halt uh, in the seventies when when um, LSD was made illegal and 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 first, and then the research was was pretty much shut down. But what Stan had realized um, in as he started, encountering all these very unusual but very uh, potentially healing experiences that people were having with LSD he began reading and realized well he thought at first he was discovering some these new realms of consciousness but then when he started looking into it he realized well people have been describing this kind of thing for thousands of years and he t- he coined the term there are, you know two basic states of consciousness hylotropic, meaning oriented toward matter, which is where at least some of us are in right now. And, um, Speak holo- for yourself, buddy. <laughs> That's why I said at least some. Um, and then the other term is holotropic, meaning oriented toward wholeness. And so, you know, he saw that traditions, some cultures used plants like ayahuasca, peyote, ibogaine, but many cultures had other means of reaching holotropic states through breath you know prolonged dancing prolonged drumming meditation different breathing techniques so he realized it's it's not so much about the substances it's about finding tools to help people spend some time in holotropic states of consciousness and in most of these cultures that was an important part of not only community life but healing so he, he gained a much broader view of um, the value of these states and that there are many different ways to get there. Substances are only one. So when LSD became illegal, he developed a technique of basically, it usually happens in groups, you lie on a mat, start breathing vigorously, there's powerful music to kind of drive the brain rhythms and then there's um, just a lot of permission to have whatever experience comes with some support if people get stuck to help them stay with it and sometimes there's body work to help um, work with all the energies that come up in the body so when I first did this in 1991 I guess you know I was I I did think well sounds really interesting but how powerful can it be compared to LSD or or mushrooms, but I found out very quickly it, it can be just as powerful, you know, in some slightly different ways. Um, there's quite a bit of overlap, but it's, it, it was a really eye opener for me because, uh, it sort of helped me realize these states of consciousness are not as far away as I thought they were. You don't necessarily need a powerful medicine to help you get there. And so I think they're, you know, It's a very complementary technique. It doesn't mean that psychedelics, that I don't think psychedelics can be very valuable tools. You you... don't
0: have to stop doing acid. Right.
2: But I would suggest breathing also.
0: (laughs) Two things. One, so my very, very, very limited experience is I've, I've been walked through this Kundalini technique—that's just like a five-minute kind of intense breathing. Actually, I was told—I I don't know how much there is to this, because I, I don't know anything about this stuff. I was told by this person that it's like you're kind of breathing really hard out, out your nose. Is like a big part of this one particular thing, and you do want to blow your nose before taking part in this, is what I found out. But, um, but it it uh, it can. I was told that it's stimulating the uh, the pineal gland and. Um, releasing potentially DMT or whatever. So I'm I, i I'm doing this. I'm like five minutes of breathing and I'm going to tr- – whatever. I, I'll like – I'll try to be open-minded and do it. Afterwards, I couldn't believe it. It was a little bit like a mushroom trip in a way. It was slightly different, a little more chill, and it was definitely – I felt very euphoric and kind of at peace, but it was also – it was a little bit like I, I have limited experience with San Pedro, which is like kind of a more – Upright, functional, chill mushroom trip in my li- limited experience, and it felt very much like that. And this is in this is in five minutes, and so um, it, I I can only imagine what you're able to do in these longer sessions. I, what when you say someone's getting stuck? If someone's getting stuck, someone what do you mean by that?
3: Maybe having a difficult experience where um, they're trapped or they feel confined or they're having some psychological issue that they feel stuck about um you know where they don't see any exit or they want to have some better experience Mm. hopeless yeah
0: kind of like a feedback loop like yeah Yeah. almost like when you Mm -hmm. have a panic attack where it's just you can't kind of snap yourself out of this Mm -hmm. out of this loop Um, and then what so what does the kind of practitioner how do you get someone out of uh, being stuck
3: so in breath work, um, a lot of it is done um, on your own, and then if you are kind of if you are stuck, then you would ask the facilitator c- to come and and ask you to go back to your breath first would be the first thing, and really see if you can try to notice where the stuckness in your body is and breathe into that with more breath, um, and there might be a little bit of talking. But mostly the, the breath work sessions, they're like three hours long. Most of them are nonverbal and it's really working with what's happening in the body to help with the stuckness or a few words and more breath. And then maybe some more context later about it, like, you know, looking at the stuckness and talking about it some. If you're, I mean, hopefully you wouldn't be in that stuckness at the end. You'd work with a practitioner and facilitator, I mean, and work through that stuckness and you would hopefully get through it by the end of the session. Yeah. I think
2: maybe the most important principle in a way of breath work and it applies very much to what we do with the MDMA therapy is getting unstuck doesn't involve trying to get unstuck. You know obviously the overriding goal is for them to get unstuck but it but the temptation is always to like move away from the stuckness or think I should be having a different experience. So a lot of what we do is encourage people to experiment with viewing the stuck experience as unpleasant and maybe scary and hopeless as it might feel. Uh, it's If you view it as a, an experience that your inner healing intelligence is bringing up for a healing opportunity, then the best way to do is not try to get unstuck but try to fully experience the stuckness and let your body experience it, let it be expressed in your body, express it in any way you want, with words, with screaming or wailing or any way your your body can express it. So it's more like moving deeper into the experience in order to come out the other side with, with a healing, a sense of healing, rather than trying to, change it directly or move away from it.
0: Yeah. I I mean, this is, this is one of the hardest things to learn just in life in general, but especially in, in the psychedelic experiences that I've had that, um, because I, I didn't start meditating until about five years ago and I wasn't kind of familiar with these concepts, but just training your brain to be like, Oh, I don't want to feel this way right now. I don't, I don't want these thoughts like get them, push them away. Instead, accepting and then in that acceptance you can find ways of reframing um and looking at it a little differently and that's i mean it, i i said this last night in my show people that meditate regularly when they have these experiences they're always they always handle them so much better than just your average uh person that's unfamiliar that might start to panic or whatever um so what, how, is it known how this is working? Cause I, I mean, I've been breathing for some time now and I'm not, I have yet to get high off of it. Uh, so, so what is, um, uh, uh, what is, uh, do they know or are they doing like MRIs with, with breath work? Do they have any idea why it's creating these seemingly, would you say transcendental state or? Is there any information out there on on what exactly is happening in the mind? Uh, because MDMA, it seems like, was fairly well understood, and we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But
2: well, and I might argue with that last point. A lot is understood about MDMA, but it's not really well understood right. why it's so healing in the way it can be. And i I think the the I'm not aware of any MRIs with with holotropic breathwork. What is known is that when you breathe that much, it shifts your pH and the amount of oxygen delivery to the brain. So even though you're breathing more, your brain is actually getting less oxygen. Um, So that probably has something to do with it. Um, But I think the point Stan makes is that it's not creating the experiences, you know, any more than psychedelics are creating the experiences. It's like a nonspecific activator. So what Stan would say is, you know, it's... In a way, it's getting the mind out of the, get out of the way to act, help give you access to this whole realm of uh, potentially healing and very interesting experiences. Um, and then that experience comes from your own psyche, from the collective unconscious, from whatever other realms you may think it's coming from.
0: So Getting your mind up. out of the way is such an interesting way of looking at it. It's something that I kind of didn't really start thinking about until it wasn't until maybe four or five years ago. I've been using psychedelics for twenty-one years, and the idea, you yeah, know, the idea of I always figured that that you know it's activating some special. I'm tapping into some certain region, and sometimes what it might be is is just inhibiting actual parts of the brain to uh, that that might be regulating some of your kind of emotional states and um
2: i think so actually one of the people in our first study said um who had no training in science after her experience of being able to reprocess her trauma in the mdma assisted session she said i think maybe the way the drug works is it helps the mind get out of the way because the mind is so protective about the trauma
0: do you worry about like you know uh, breathing, corrupting these young children's minds, and, and you know, I, I, I mean, I, I well, I, I mean, seriously, I, I do, um, so, so you talk about limiting blood flow to the brain. I mean, you know, when, when you're a kid and, and, uh, I never did this of all the crazy things I've done in my life. I'm proud of myself for not participating in this little exercise where you like choke someone out of against the wall. And then, like, to me, it seemed pretty stupid. And now I'm listening. I'm like, well, maybe they were just being super spiritual. Uh, <laughs> having it, it, do you think that there is, um, potential risks
3: involved? uh with this
0: um has, uh, has, sure. has there been any? yeah
3: if you have heart disease B- because any
0: you're a nurse
3: if you have heart disease right yeah and um you know there's some contraindications pregnancy um glaucoma heart disease those mm. are the, the main things for holotropic breath work
2: mm. um. even breathing is not risk-free it's all about risk-benefit ratio <laughs>
3: the, the risk-benefit
2: ratio for breathing seems to be pretty favorable overall
0: as i'm carefully breathe, i keep doing it shane you're doing great keep breathing in the right way um I, and i'm getting all in my head about how i'm breathing i we are we were talking over lunch i've been doing um i've been doing more sensory deprivation work and uh I, i'll know a lot more in the future once i actually have experience with this with this breath work but I can't believe what just floating in water can do to the mind. It's incredible. I mean, I've had – not at first, it took me a little while, but I've had experiences that were far more powerful than a lot of like mushroom or LSD trips um, that I've had. Is this something – breath work, is this – I mean, I imagine – um, this is probably really a needless question because I imagine it's just simply the case. Is this something that as you do it, as you gain more experience, you're getting more and more out of it? Like, if it's your first, you're going in, I'm going in on Tuesday, I'm doing my first breath work session. Would you say it's often the case that maybe someone's first time they don't connect? It's, they're not kind of getting the full experience out of it. I know the first time that I floated, I was like, you need to meditate. you got to walk yourself through stuff. It was great. I liked it. It was like refreshing. But it wasn't until I was able to kind of let go and have more experience with it that things really opened up. I imagine breath work is kind of the same way.
3: Yeah, right? probably your first time. You're maybe checking out the group and how it works for you. and um, But, I mean, people have very powerful experiences the first time they do it too so um you know there's maybe both
0: um i so someone goes into one of these and and it's typically i mean i imagine it's a little different everywhere you're sitting in a room of say 20 people and um did, did we already talk about i screwing up this is our lunch conversation or not but just how it works so there's someone um Sorry, you don't say practitioner. But facilitator. Facilitator. There's a facilitator and then there's, they take turns. So there's.
3: A sitter ha- and a half breather. Half the group
0: breathing, half mm-hmm. the group sitting for, so you're right next to someone. Has anyone ever trips that for somebody before? Raise your hand if you have a, f- a few of you. It's a cool experience, right? It's interesting to hear what, what, uh, can come out of people. So, so you get to breathe and then you get to sit and, and vice versa. How do, so, Everyone here is now hearing about this breathwork stuff, and I want to check this out. How do you go about finding one of the – I mean, you can Google and find it, but how do you know that you're um, finding a legitimate um, organization? Are there credentials? Are there, like, certifications, anything like that?
3: Yeah, there are certified facilitators that have done the holotropic breathwork training. And then there's there are other kinds of breathwork, but for the kind that we were trained in – there are facilitators, and there's a, a website that you can find out if people are certified in it.
2: Groff Transpersonal Training mm-hmm. is the is the official website gtt dot might be com or something, but you can find it that way. And there's also, I think it's under breathwork dot com. There's a list you can search by state or by city for certified. Holotropic breathwork practitioners. And that
3: used to be Abby, right?
2: Yeah, it used to be. Or yeah. maybe
3: it still is, A-H-B-I. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: You talk about having a male and
0: female um, uh, guiding. this uh, but, but Why is that? It, because you do this in the MDMA um, therapy as well. You have a, both a male and female therapist at the same time. What is the purpose of that, rather than just having one person?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think... It brings up having the, I mean, ideally having the mother and father, the male and female energies, archetypes. Um, but, you know, we also have explored, you know, how to come out of that box and and not have male and female. I mean, not have to specify that. But in the studies that we've done, that's how we have done the studies with male and female. Um, I think
2: it gives safety, especially in people with trauma, Sexual trauma, especially yeah. it can it can feel much safer to a lot of people and as Annie says, we're you know we're kind of in conversations in recent years with many people don't identify as either male or female, and so there are lots of we want to make room for we don't want to limit and exclude people because of that terminology yeah. so for many people, that is a good balance, but there are other possibilities for other other people
3: and we've been working on a a a couple study just recently where we are working with two female therapists um doing the study instead of a male and female um approach
0: um when is the term like transference so someone comes in and they're getting therapy from from you two on uh mdma assisted psychotherapy and i've just started hearing a little more about this idea of of um be- because of your age sorry you're older um <laughs> that 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 people will kind of start viewing you as their their kind of mother and father type whereas maybe a a younger um uh, team they might relate more as like they might be treating them more like a sibling um th- is that is that a pretty common thing
3: yeah, well, well transference is, would be really common in therapy. Um so, but with MDMA, the transference can be a lot stronger. Um you know, it, I mean it doesn't necessarily have to be good mother or good father. It could be bad mother, bad father, you know. So, any kind of transference you have um can be made stronger. I think MDMA makes magnifies or um enhances anything that is going on for you in your life, like biographical or traumatic experiences would be magnified. So the transference with a therapist would be part of that.
0: Um, On my, I guess I'd say underground MDMA therapy. um, That just means I do MDMA sometimes. Um, I, so I I think I've maybe discussed this before, but I, I used to, I, I had a limited experience with MDMA used it like as a party drug when I was younger, felt good and euphoric and everything. I got nothing out of it in terms of like bettering my life. And so it just wasn't one of my, fa- I, I, I really do genuinely use psychedelics um, for the most part anyway, to try to learn more about myself and, and better myself and become more mindful. And I wasn't getting that out of MDMA. And then I, um, started dating a a new girl a couple years ago she was into mdma and i started doing it with her and man it changed everything it was set and setting is of course like uh almost a cliche but so very important context is everything in the and i mean i've we've had experiences where and and not not that we were having like troubles or anything like that but just some like Underlying stuff that maybe you didn't even notice that we were able to talk about, like, sometimes I feel this way about your behavior in, in this, like, really safe, open way where maybe you would normally kind of keep this from the other person and, and in sharing it, kind of bonding even more and being accepting and forgiving one another. I mean, it's been absolutely life changing, um, in, in terms of, a relationship i i don't uh i've done a little bit of m d m a just by myself and i for me i haven't gotten that much benefit out of using that but everyone's a little bit different um i uh, why is um you said you we don't know the answers to this exactly but what is kind of the working idea right now with what m d m a is potentially doing in the brain what, that's altering this state that is so beneficial for people that all of a sudden people are able to work through some past sexual trauma or a veteran that is normally just too, you don't even want to think about this stuff and push it away. This is some terrifying nightmare that you just wish didn't exist in your brain anymore. And, uh, and, and you're repressing it and repressing it. What, what is it about MDMA that is allowing people to, um, heal from this and to process this or whatever's happening
2: well as you say when you describe your experience with your girlfriend you know it really seems to help people not feel they have to be defensive to feel they can okay i can, this may be hard but i can face it now and i'm not going to be overwhelmed and it's okay i don't have to fend it off so you know it, the picture is far from complete in understanding why that MDMA does that. But some of the factors are, you know, it causes a lot of release of serotonin, as well as other neurotransmitters, dopamine, um, norepinephrine, and others. So, um, that along with um, hormone, increasing hormone levels, particularly prolactin and oxytocin, uh, which has probably has to do with the more social affiliation part. But um, maybe one of the best ways to understand at least part of it is we know from uh, brain imaging that MDMA causes a, a decrease, decrease in activity in the amygdala, which is like the fear center, and an increased activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is more like the higher processing. That's in healthy volunteers. Um, we know that in people with PTSD without MDMA, PTSD actually... Um, people with PTSD have increased activity in the amygdala in the fear center decreased activity in the prefrontal cortex so it's like when somebody with PTSD gets triggered their brain is hijacked by the amygdala by the fear and they can't process it and put it into context once that overwhelm kind of happens so the fact that mdma has the opposite of that effect where it settles the fear center makes um higher processing more online makes a lot of sense that that could be helpful, helpful with PTSD. And we've actually just finished finished brain imaging on the last 10 people in our last study, and those are still being analyzed. And others are about to do more studies with PT, people with PTSD, with MDMA in the scanner. So I think that's a big part of it. And then, so, you know, that people, and it fits with what we see, people suddenly, if they start, reprocessing processing their trauma, they tend to n- neither be overwhelmed and hijacked by the anxiety, nor are they emotionally shut down. It seems to be give them kind of the sweet spot that's sometimes referred to as the optimal arousal zone. Um, so, it gives people a few hours where they can discuss things, process things without having that emotional overwhelm. And then there's a lot of new work with different relationships between different um, uh, networks in the brain and that, that's a more sophisticated picture of what's going on where people… One analogy that one of the researchers I heard speaking at the MAPS conference recently, one of the imaging researchers from London was saying it's as if, you know, if you're sledding down a hill on a toboggan, once you get a groove it's very hard to turn out of that groove and what they're seeing with the different networks is it suddenly like a, a new blanket of snow there's a chance for people to have a take a new track which i think is a really useful image and that's what it seems to happen people who have just been stuck in this loop suddenly can see things differently can experience things differently and mdma seems to allow for that to happen i'm obsessed with the stress response
0: system because it's it's uh very important. Sometimes it's very, it, sometimes stress is, uh, you know, that's it, it gets you out of a pickle. It, 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 you're in a bit of danger in this stress response system, but you can run faster or, or, you know, a, a mother can all of a sudden lift a car off of their child. And, and, and so it has these purposes, but it can also be, um, it has these other effects where, you know, you're stressed to say it's not some deep trauma thing. You're you're running late for work or having a bad day, and you're stressed. And all of a sudden, you kind of have this tunnel vision. You know, you're you're not thinking clearly. You're you're more impulsive, and you're uh you're not you're not getting a full view of things, and you're just kind of running around like a chicken with its head cut cut off. And um, in a way, that seems to me like what what PTSD is sort of do where you have this. A grenade goes off to, next to you, you know, and then like it's this horrible thing, and your friends explode, and then you're like, "Ooh, don't want to, don't want to think about that anymore." And then there's this kind of open feedback loop in your head where where your brain's like, "Hey, remember, there's grenades out there in the environment. You got to do that's a really important thing. You got to keep an eye out for that grenade." And the more it does that, the more you're like, "I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that." And um, and so it, it seems seems like mdma is kind of just allowing you to finally like okay here's what i saw this was the experience this is what made me feel and in processing that it kind of closes this this loop and and you get closure on this not that it's not that you're now skipping around through life necessarily but it just helps you process it a a little more And, and so that's why the amygdala is kind of Uh, overactive in these people is that uh,
2: yeah one of the veterans in our last study said he was an Iraq veteran he said PTSD changed my brain and MDMA changed it back Mm. that uh, was his summary of the neurobiology and you know I think one important point when we're talking about this is what we see so often is it's not just what happens during the MDMA effect the MDMA seems to catalyze this process that continues to unfold for weeks, months, years, or maybe for the rest of your life. And so, you know, we see it all the time. We have close follow-up sessions. You know, the MDMA sessions in our studies are three sessions a month apart in general. And then, you know, integration sessions in between to help people work with and integrate integrate what's coming up. And it's We see it all the time that people get, get, something gets catalyzed during the MDMA session but then the healing continues. People do better and better over time usually instead of, you know, a medicine wearing off and they're suddenly losing the effect. So it's it's very much about, it's not sure the MDMA is doing some important things in the brain and I'm sure that a lot of it is that it catalyzes you know, turning out of that toboggan track and then you're still not at the bottom of the hill, you're going to have a lot of interesting rides and journeys and turns after that. I wish
0: there was more sledding metaphors out there. I think <laughs> I... am digging this one. I love that metaphor. It's great. It really it does a nice job of something Um I... So, uh, we'll open things up for questions in a second. I'm just very greedily right now have uh fascinated by this and, and have, uh, have one more, probably five more, thing, but I have one more thing that I definitely want to ask. So. This MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, you go in three, three sessions, potentially a month apart, and you're having everything you just discussed, and then people, you check back in a year later, what are the results so far from the phase two when you're checking back in with people a year later as far as um, where they're at is with qualifying for still having X
2: amount of... Uh, of um, well, in the first study, actually, we did the follow-up we only had a two-month follow-up, but then we went back and did a long-term follow-up afterwards. So it ended up being an average of three and a half years later. It was a minimum of 17 months after the last MDMA session, but it was an average of like 42 months. Um, And what we found was the average PTSD scores at three and a half years were the same, actually slightly lower, but statistically the same as two months later. And within that group, two people did relapse to to high scores. So it wasn't sustained. That was out of 20 people. It wasn't sustained for everyone. But for most people, if anything, they were doing even better three and a half years later. There was no sign of it dropping off. And we've seen the same thing now across six phase two trials. With Usually it's been a one-year follow-up except for that first one. So what we're seeing is one year or later... If anything, on average, people are doing better than they were two months later, which really verifies that idea that it's a process that keeps keeps unfolding in a helpful way if people stay with it.
0: Well, so I've asked that because I, I'm very interested in this. I mean, that's incredible, everything that you just said, but it wouldn't potentially in an ideal World and laws are different and therapy is different and everyone has access to this, uh, to this clinical treatment and this, um, in this professional setting. Wouldn't you want kind of like a refresher every, like, once a year, once every two years? I mean, it seems, it seems to me that, um, you know, okay. You, You you process the grenade. It's it's not pleasant, but at least you got that. Oh, you're probably you're doing so much better. This is this is life changing. Your brain has now reset to where it was before the grenade. But no, you know life's always going to be full of problems. Now you didn't get the promotion that you wanted, and you hate your job, but you're trapped in it, and your teenage son is being an asshole to you, and and like problems can. I mean, isn't this? it seems to me that you don't need to have PTSD to benefit um, from this treatment. I think pretty obviously. And so, why why just stop after that? After those three sessions, is this just because of the confines of the studies that you're allowed to do, or or is it that people literally don't need it after that?
3: Well it's for us it's the confines of the study Mm -hmm. but also you know what we found is once the obstacle of ptsd is out of the way people start to do things that they enjoyed in life and um, you know find other tools other spiritual practices meditation i mean art everything that they couldn't do before gardening they start to do but you know we asked that question on the long-term questionnaire about would it be good if you could have another session? And a lot of the people did say, um, you know, six months down the road or a year down the road, it would have been nice to be able to have one other session, um, you know, because there is a lot of processing that's happening after the sessions, after the three sessions. It's it's really a lot of work, you know. It's not. I mean, people have this idea that MDMA is like fun and a party drug, um, but in this setting and with PTSD. That scares
0: the crap out of me because someone goes to like a music festival and then all of a sudden they revisit some past trauma and they're in this environment around people that don't know how to... Uh, yeah,
3: I mean, that can be scary for people. Yeah. We've we've heard people that, that that's happened for. But, you know, it's, it's also a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the integration process and what happens after that can be a lot of work still although that you know hopefully the most of the PTSD is is out of the way um, yeah do you want to say anything more about
2: yeah I mean to? I think it reminds me a little bit of the question when I that the person at the ideal ice cream asked me yesterday when we were there with our grandson do you want one scoop or two scoops and I said well if you're asking me what I want I'm going to say two scoops <laughs> so um Yes, I think you would want an, a periodic refresher for many people. Um, so That's it, my it, new text code with my drug dealer. <laughs> I would like two scoops. Um. But, so, you know, it is pretty artificial. Three sessions is what we, what's practical from a research point of view. And it is quite remarkable that even actually a lot of our outcomes have been after two sessions and people have done very well. Mm. But that doesn't mean that another session couldn't be very useful Especially six months or a year later, you know, with some time. So, I do think once it's approved for clinical use, having that flexibility will be a good thing. Having said that, it, this structure of the study forced us to not be able to do that. And there were a few people that really thought they would do better with more MDMA sessions. And we thought so too, but we couldn't do it. So, it kind of forced us to say, you know, come back to what we believe, which is that this is an ongoing, unfolding process. So it forced us to say, you know, we can't do that, but we will support you in continuing to work with this in other ways, including breath work, for instance. You know, this was after the study was over. And with the number of people, it's actually been kind of freeing to be, you know, to escape from that, the, the potential problem is you think you need the drug and you think it's all about the drug and you think you need it a lot of you know often and that can be a way of moving away from your inner work Mm -hmm. as well so we were very struck by how useful it can be to really remember it's not the kind of thing you need to keep doing all the time you really need to take what you've learned and um integrate it continue to work with it realize there are other ways to do it otherwise i think you can get into problems mm-hmm. not only maybe with too much mdma but with missing the point yeah of what the pro- what the the p- not process. setting
0: intentions not right. integrating exactly it's a, such a it changes everything yeah uh, i mean the difference between I mean, you can still. I mean, I I can take some mushrooms and have a good time without doing intentions or integrating or anything. But the difference between that and including setting intentions and integration is like, oftentimes, I like the the integration process way more than the trip itself, and that lasts for longer. I have this comic friend, Jake Baker. He talks about MDMA. Has always stuck with me when he said he said, "I do it," and then it just helps me remember that i can feel that way naturally that's my brain is capable of feeling that way and then oftentimes if i'm having a bad day or going through some rough thing i can just remember that experience and it kind of lifts them up out of it and and i mean that's Once you've kind of opened up that possibility in your mind, you're able to access that or or close to it a little more. I want to get to you guys. Um, Does anyone have any questions? And um, and if you do, does anybody raise your hand? Yeah.
4: Thanks very much. Uh, My question is about how study participants are chosen. What the criteria are. Um, what kinds of trauma you're looking at. So I know veterans, you mentioned sexual abuse, things like that. Um, are these people coming to you or are you going out to them? I just want to know a little bit more about who is participating and what the rationale behind that is and how that's going to affect things going forward when this does get out to the larger community in terms of who's getting this treatment.
2: Sure, thanks. Um, well, our first study, which we got approval for uh, before the Iraq war had started, was... Um, we got our FDA approval in um, the fall of 2001. That was with crime-related PTSD. So it was mostly childhood sexual abuse or rape or assault. The second study we did in Charleston um, was because we realized all of a sudden we were having a lot of veterans again, uh, we limited that to veterans, firefighters, and police officers. It was mostly veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. But in phase three, we're not going to limit the PTSD cause. It'll be open to military and non-military trauma. And in the studies, people have had to have failed other treatment. Like the first study, you had to have failed therapy and medicines. Usually, people had had a lot of both because they would had PTSD for an average of over 19 and a half years. And in all the other phase two studies, people had to have failed prior treatment. That will not be the case for phase three because we've already discussed this with FDA. We're not going for an indication just for treatment-resistant PTSD because we see no reason why people shouldn't be able to choose that as their initial treatment if they want to. And so we think any kind of trauma. Uh, As far as how they're chosen, basically... You know, there's a list of inclusion and exclusion criteria. Basically, people have to be medically healthy, especially can't have heart disease or or history of stroke or that kind of thing, just because MDMA raises blood pressure and pulse. Um, And then for psychiatric exclusions, the only real exclusions are um, psychotic disorder, um, active substance abuse within the last 60 days, and uh eating disorder but only if there's active purging otherwise eating disorder is okay and um dissociative identity disorder those are the those are the exclusions basically um and bipolar type one yeah so
0: nobody basically
2: you know there's still a few people left and you know those we don't think those are necessary absolute contraindications to MDMA therapy. They're just practical uh, criteria to do it in this very structured, time limited framework. Um, so, and then we just take people in the, we don't pick and choose. We ex- enroll people in the order that they apply and um, meet all the criteria. And the screening is done by outside psychologists and Physicians so who do the psychological testing and the medical testing. We've um,
3: had all, over two thousand people call for the second study for twenty-six uh, spots.
0: How, how many for different locations study. are are there? To, because you're doing several different centers, right? Well, that was right? just that,
3: that was for the Charleston site. But in, you mean in phase three? Yeah, 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 phase three. In phase three, there'll be fourteen sites. Um, two of them will, will three. Two will be in Canada. One will be in Israel. So. There'll be 11 sites in in the United States.
0: Well, so I'm really glad that you asked that question because one of the things that we should always include in it, and I kind of, I go back and forth with how much of a disclaimer, like you know, everything needs a damn disclaimer these days. But, but the thing is like, I'm, I'm not about like, Hey, everyone go out and do fucking every drug you can get your hands at all. I, if this is legal one day and this is like a legitimate, uh, you can go into this clinical professional setting and we're got the, and, and someone's recommend it. Absolutely. But I, d- I definitely worry about the recreational, um, aspect because a lot of times bath salts are being passed off as MDMA, things like that. And so a lot of people don't know that there's, you can, you can drink too little water, you can drink too much water, uh, it, and it, it can lead, there are potential problems. I would say with MDMA in particular, um, with uh, possibilities of heat stroke where you're at a rave and dancing around and stuff like that so so please anyone listening please 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 do your research i'm not telling you what to do or not do but just do some research um and uh, testing kits and all of that stuff if you are going to I, uh, uh, you know do things recreationally which is not what i'm endorsing um but um uh, we, we had some other questions Thank you. Um, So,
1: I am an EMDR therapist, and um, I'm currently sitting on two conference proposals to kind of present um, to the counseling profession what the state of psychedelic assisted therapy is at the current moment. Um, So, my kind of two questions are what is you all's general approach in presenting this material that is inherently somewhat controversial to um, professional bodies? And then the second part. Is what um, kind of efforts does Maps have in place to connect with other professional organizations or other professions? I understand, um, you know, you're a nurse. I take it a, um, a medical doctor, and I know um, some of the other leading John Hopkins researchers. She's a social worker, um, but what are you all doing to kind of um, kind of advocate for this?
2: Well, yeah, thanks. Yeah,
0: which back because the yeah, has- I used to do
2: MDR a lot too when I was still doing clinical practice um, and we're very interested in communicating with uh, other therapists and other professionals. We do a lot of speaking at, at very mainstream medical meetings um, and so we're we're constantly trying to have outreach um, and it, you know because it can be it sounds very strange to. A lot of therapists so we're really interested in having these discussions I will say if you would like I have lots of slide sets about that I've used to present it to people that don't know anything about this and might be very skeptical and if you want to email me I'd be happy to share my slides that you could use for your talks Um, and um, I I
3: think you know when describing it I think similar things happen that happened in EMDR um, where the brain the inner healer and the processing takes you in places just like EMDR so it's not really that different in a way um, to describe and then we were talking to someone else about um, prolonged exposure and some of the other ways that um, other kinds of therapy for PTSD and a lot of those kinds of therapy show up in the session you know people will all of a sudden start doing prolonged exposure you know, and we don't direct them to do that. Um, so I think it's not as strange as it, it really is when you actually know what happens in the sessions.
2: Is, in a way, the philosophy is a lot like EMDR in that we're we're not assuming where it's going to go or where it needs to go or how far it needs to go. We're just trying to provide a way of stimulating someone's own process. So, um, yeah, the, the thing Annie's talking about, I, I wrote a little article in the maps bulletin i think it was 2013 you can access it online at the maps website just about like mdma this is psychotherapy how strange is it or i've forgotten the title but i i just talk about the way elements of so many other kinds of therapy do come up in the mdma session so if another therapist was watching that particular part it wouldn't seem strange at all and as annie said the, the difference being we don't have an agenda about what should happen when we don't say to people now it's time to do imaginal exposure or now it's time to look at your cognitive distortions they just do that spontaneously and we support them in exploring whatever's coming out
0: i was curious what are uh, in terms of ptsd what are when you talk about you're only in phase one and two only able to have these treatment resistant um, what is the current treatment for PTSD outside of MDMA? Well,
3: the current treatment is therapy. Uh, EMDR is one of the um, therapies, right? Yeah, EMDR, the ones, medicine.
2: The ones, yeah, go ahead. the ones, well, for instance, recognized by the American Psychiatric Association with Evidence based are EMDR, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, mainly prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy, and then also psychodynamic therapy is on the list. So the, like the prominent ones in the VA, for instance, are um, some EMDR, but a lot of prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy. And, you know, there's really good data that no medicine is a definitive treatment for PTSD, even though they're used a lot and can help with symptoms. The definitive treatment is is psychotherapy, and those are the the ones out there, and, you know, unfortunately, um, fortunately, they can help quite a few people. Unfortunately, it's probably less than half of the people that need it that can be helped by those, and the dropout rates are high. So, you know, we're our position is we're not saying that we're categorically, MDMA therapy is better than other therapies. We're just saying, we need lots of different tools. Some people respond to existing treatments, but many people don't. So that's why we need better, bigger range of effective tools. What What are the current medications? That- well, the only ones, medicines approved by FDA with an indication for PTSD are Zoloft and Paxil, surgery and Paroxetine. Um, So, a lot of, uh, but, you know, that is kind of generalized to SSRIs and SNRIs, but then any other medicine on the formulary has been used for PTSD. We see people that usually are also getting benzodiazepines and uh, antipsychotics. Seroquel is a popular one at the VA now. You know, medicines with very serious, even deadly side effects without good evidence for effectiveness for PTSD are being used because not because the VA or other psychiatrists are evil, It's because they don't they're trying to help people with the symptoms and they don't have a definitive way of doing that. So they end up trying all these other things which have limited success and, and serious toxicity what's what's the difference what's
0: between these what, what is the difference between what those are doing and what uh mdma assisted psychotherapy is doing like what like chemical changes like like why why are those seemingly less effective than what mdma might be showing as potentially
2: yeah well there's overlap of course in the chemical changes like with serotonin for instance but i think the main difference is those are directed at suppressing symptoms directly and MDMA is directed at having a therapeutic experience that gets at the basis of the problem that's causing the symptoms. In fact even maybe magnifying the symptoms in the process. So it's a very different approach and you know MDMA these can of course be toxic as well. um, Which you need to be careful about but the fact that we're only giving it like three times a month apart does have real advantages in terms of toxicity and compared to like Seroquel people are taking it every day they're getting metabolic syndrome and diabetes and things like that so that's another part of the that I thing I like about this model we're not talking about daily medicine medication
0: um by by the way um oh Eric you had your your hand up um, this is uh Eric Osborne, he has a really, really cool, he does these retreats in Jamaica, um, where psilocybin is legal. I'm doing a 10 day retreat with him. Um, just after Thanksgiving, um, this year and I'll be doing a show there and everything else. So you should talk to him afterwards if that's something that sounds cool to you. And it should sound cool. You had a question, right? Thank you guys.
1: Uh, yeah, I have three, so feel free to answer none or all. Um, the first is uh, in regards to the risks of MDMA. I've never worked with MDMA because I've been afraid of street varieties. And also, as you mentioned earlier, with the um, the release of serotonin and oxotonin, um I wonder about the concerns with depleting the system uh, and what's done to ameliorate that, if anything. Uh, another question I had was, you spoke of MDMA as um, increasing activity in the prefrontal cortex and decreasing the amygdala. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of crossover between like psilocybin and LSD uh, for PTSD treatment, which have the reverse tendency to um, decrease activity in the prefrontal cortex anyway. I'm not sure about the amyg- amygdala, um, but, how is it that we're seeing such an overlap in these different therapies um, that have almost an exact opposite function in the brain? That's pretty interesting. And then I'm also interested just like how, as far as um, with plant-based therapies, how that is moving forward, um, if you guys have any knowledge about that. Thank you.
2: Um, Does anyone else have 30 questions? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. so the first one. Tell me what the first one was again. Uh, the and Oh right, yeah, um, yeah. Well, A, I, I share your concern about MDMA that you get on the street and using it in uncontrolled ways. I think that the risk benefit ratio is less definitely less favorable than careful screening carefully screened people with pure MDMA. The the thing about like Blue Monday or. Um, down periods the next week, um, possibly being due to depleted serotonin. um, We don't tend to see that with the pure MDMA. We don't do anything to mitigate that. I know there's a lot of, um, you know, anecdotal stuff about taking 5-HTP or Prozac or other supplements. Couldn't really do that with the FDA anyway, but we've been struck by the fact that we don't see a problem. In fact, in the first study, when we tracked low mood, the week after the either inactive placebo, same all-day session with inactive placebo versus with MDMA, the incidence of low mood was greater in the inactive placebo group than the MDMA group. Not to say nobody had low mood. Sometimes it happened. Often people's bodies were tired, Um, but we usually found and and people had a little more anxiety the week after with MDMA than with an active placebo. What we saw was if we were in contact with people and if they were having trouble, we would have an extra meeting with them and work with the content that was connected with those feelings, it was actually part of their process that they could work with and move through successfully. So I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that in a lot of cases with recreational use, where Shane says stuff may be coming up at a party and you're not prepared for it, I think maybe a lot of what happens is people have unprocessed material that was trying to come up during their session and then they're stuck with it the week following. So I think that may be part of it. Can
3: I say something? Yeah. And and that doesn't mean that people aren't really tired. Um, we've had people who were tired the next day and just felt like taking it easy all day, which you know we've encouraged them to to do that. Um, but then some people have wanted to, to, uh, you know, walk a really long distance and, and been fine with that. And I think what Michael was just saying about the emotional, um, part of it is that we've had people that have gone through the whole session and have processed really, really hard stuff and never cried. And then two days later, they find themselves crying for three hours and, for us, we don't see that as a problem. We see that as a good thing. They needed to cry about all of the things that they had just talked about and and were able to talk about and connect with without so much emotion. And then to have support, you know, to be able to cry and, and actually have the emotion a few days later was, you know, a good thing.
0: So one of his other 40 questions was about how... Um... I think I got the one more dig. I think I remember um, the others. Uh, yeah, oh, you do? Okay, okay. so
2: the, I think the short answer to number two, why MDMA and psilocybin both help for PTSD and, and but have different effects, I think, that, well, there isn't really data yet with psilocybin, but I think it's very promising for PTSD also. Um, I think the short answer is they're both just different ways of reaching a whole trophic state, that allows the inner healing intelligence to be manifest and they just do it in different ways. I think that thing about MDMA with the amygdala may be particularly helpful for many people with PTSD because it's less likely to be a, as frightening an experience, although sometimes it is still very frightening. So I think there's some features of MDMA that are particularly well suited for PTSD, but I, I think probably... MD- psilocybin has great potential for that too, as it you know the Hopkins team and the UCLA team and the NYU team are showing that it can be very good for end of life anxiety and and addictions too. So um, and the third one about plants. I just was interested in plant-based therapies and how they're progressing
1: with you know mescaline or psilocybin, uh, if Index moving forward at all
2: yeah the psilocybin research is moving forward very well they're a little behind us in getting to phase three but not by much um the others there's been less work but i think they're coming along is
1: the psilocybin synthetic or is that whole plant?
2: okay right they are using synthetic psilocybin good point yeah um it's more difficult like i was down at deborah mash's clinic in st kitts many years ago where she was doing ibogaine studies and it was very, very expensive and difficult to get the, you know, standardized plant material. But I think that's coming along more slowly. Um, you know, it makes me think of what, what we were at Albert Hoffman's 100th birthday in Basel for a meeting and somebody asked him, well, isn't it better to use plant-based medicines than synthetic medicines? And, um, he said, anybody that thinks there's a difference doesn't understand the relationship between consciousness and matter.
0: I mean, as someone who mushrooms are probably, mushrooms and DMT are my two favorite. but mushrooms are have been absolutely life-changing. DMT is just fascinating to me, but uh, mushrooms have been the most therapeutic thing that I've ever done. But even that, I do, I mean... You gobble a bunch of mushroom caps, and sometimes all of a sudden you don't know. Like all of a sudden, one chunk of it metabolizes all at the same time, and you're like, wow And then like, and then you're, you're, and then that wears off, and you're like, "Oh, I think I'm done." tripping and then another thing, goes, and, and so I, I do. Uh, I, I mean, plant uh, plants aren't perfect in that way, and, and then knowing exactly how much psilocybin is in a given mushroom and but. But uh, and unless you like, if you're putting it in capsules or getting some, it, so I, I mean, you can you can see why from like our, our current, the way the standard model of medicine and science is right now, like of course it's going to be easier to have these more synthetic, you know, kind of pill uh, things that that are the FDA is just going to be that's what they're used to, you know, rather than like. Uh, there's not a lot of medicines out there that are, you know, in your drugstore where you're, like, chewing on a piece of bark or something like that. And so, like, the FDA is just kind of not used to, like...
4: My understanding is that you can't patent a plant and so that it's very hard to regulate something that's unpatentable and hard to measure like that. So it's easier to have consistency with a synthetic chemical and that's why we can't, like, patent essential oils... Because you can't patent the peppermint plant, but you can patent like a GMO seed that's been made to be the specific standard of how many things go into something. That's uh, obscure understanding that I have, and it may or may not be true. But for why we can't keep, uh, why we can't regulate as clearly as like a plant-based structure as we can a synthetic one.
2: I guess it's more, it's harder. I mean, I'm not an expert in that area, but of course they're regulating cannabis now in a bunch of places and they can measure the amount of CBD and THC at least. And I do I do want to say that I think there's, there is, I agree with Albert Hoffman, I don't think there's anything wrong with synthetic uh, compounds either. And I do appreciate that if these plants have been used for thousands of years, that's a very nice safety profile to have, I think.
0: Yeah, that we've evolved along with these, uh, these things. I, so,
2: like, you don't have to stop, stop chewing on bark. Is that the main message? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, it, I mean, the other side of it is, is that, uh, say you take something with, like, essential oils or whatever, like, like the negative side is that's, like, a workaround for potential charlatans out there that can have things that are, at best, placebos. that were actually harmful. And and then they're like, here, take take this, and then like, you know, you'll have like the the the, the wisest direction you've ever had. It's always weird, like stuff like that, like in these, in these booths. And I'm not saying the stuff that there aren't amazing, helpful things out there, but there are. I mean, even at the psychedelic science conference that I attended, and some of the booths, some of the like some of these. Are, First off, that was the strangest thing when it was like, you know, these are very open minded people. That, that, like, these are my peeps, you know, these are people, that, you know, searching for greater knowledge and all this. And, and then it'd be like, and this thing will give you a boner. That's just, that's <laughs> humans for you. Um, <laughs> well, animals in general, I suppose. But, but, uh, I, I mean, I, I think that there's, uh, there's also just a negative side of those, of those unregulated things, um, potentially. Hey, so my understanding of most drugs is the drug has to be at the right place at the right time for a fairly long time, especially with something like the SSRIs and SNRIs. So what's so special about psychedelics, in, in your opinion, that they can be there for such a small amount of time and still have those same just huge long-term effects on the brain?
2: Well, I think it's that they're, they are tools for accessing holotropic states of consciousness which are inter- inherently valuable for healing and learning and broadening your experience so it's i think that that's what the long-term effect is not the not the pharmacological effect of the drug lasting long term but the pro the deep inner process that unfolds as, as a result is that does that answer your question i
0: i mean i I would say that like so there's not chemicals that like still there's not like this permanent like chemical change in your brain, but because of this experience it's reframe i i don't think you need psychedelics for this I think that you can go and travel and like see a new culture and and get some a fresh look at your life and some insights there's a lot of ways to do this, and psychedelics are just like a real fast like it's it's like those new kind of experiences and reframing on steroids is how I think about it. Yeah, It's
2: like George Greer, who's a psychiatrist that worked with MDMA when it was legal and published some reports, said there's nothing you can do with MDMA that you can't do without MDMA. You just might not get to it in this lifetime.
3: I think the other thing is maybe people access spiritual, a spiritual connection that maybe they didn't have. um, And that is something that can carry them through life i mean it doesn't necessarily mean that it's religious but there's some of their own connection to something or nature which you know can change people's lives
2: yeah then the johns hopkins psilocybin research they tracked mystical experience they've got a states of consciousness questionnaire which you know has a threshold for above which it means you've had a full-blown mystical experience and they saw a very high correlation between mystical experience with psilocybin and outcome in terms of anxiety and and those symptoms with mdma we ended up in their second study we used the same measure of theirs and it was interesting with mdma we about 30 percent of people had a full-blown mystical experience but it did not correlate with outcome it was very important for those people. It probably correlated with their outcome, but we saw people that had did not have a mystical experience have just as good an outcome, so it was quite individual.
3: And we're tracking their PTSD symptoms. Right, the in terms outcome. of
2: outcome being decrease in PTSD symptoms. Yeah, okay. thanks.
0: I, I like that Johns Hopkins also has, like, they categorize what a mystical experience is. There's, like, five or six criteria that's, like... A, Oh, what's that word? And I always forget the, the, the F, from... Um, that it's, it's a word that literally means hard to put into words. And I'm having a hard time putting it into, it's so funny. Uh, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, and then, and then it's like, I think another one is it's seeming like a completely different, um, reality than this. Another one is that it's, um, uh, like, clear uh, like nothing seemed more true um and and then it's temporary oh man that's four come on shane i'm doing great believe in yourself buddy <laughs> um and uh ah, there's a there's a uh, one another one is that oneness. it's sacred oh oneness and and connected and God, I love science. <laughs> science like, Johns Hopkins is like, we're going to break down what a mystical experience is and then have people, it's amazing. I love science so much. Um, anyway, uh, another? Hi, thanks for um, all of this. It's
5: really su- uh, sweet to hear you. Um, so uh, I'm a psychologist and I've treated uh, quite a few people with trauma disorders. I did a lot of my training in the VA. And so I just had one or two questions, one quick one uh, uh, somewhat longer Uh, we were talking earlier about retention rates for different forms of trauma focused treatments Uh, so things like prolonged exposure EMDR cognitive processing therapy have a retention rate of around 50 percent or so you had mentioned earlier what the retention rate was for your studies could you share that for everyone here
2: yeah uh, our first study the retention rate was 95 percent and the Recent study, mostly with veterans, it was uh, even lower than, even higher than that. It two people out of 26 dropped out, although one dropped out because he uh, was basically cured by one MDMA session, didn't want any more, but he did come back for follow-up and he was doing very well a year later. Um, so yeah, we have a very high retention rate compared to the other treatments. Excellent, thank you. Um,
5: and then the other piece is that in, in post-traumatic stress disorder, there tends to be a couple different symptoms that cluster together. So one is re-experiencing, which is basically the the thought, the memory of the experience showing up again and again. Uh, one is avoidance, which is the particular behavior. Someone will avoid crowded places or avoid reminders that show them. The third is thoughts. Um, so it's usually uh, the world is dangerous and I am not able to take care of myself. And the last is hypervigilance which is essentially the, the baseline set, sense of not being safe. And it's that last one that's extremely difficult to treat with the standard psychotherapy treatments. Um, and it's also one that shows up for people that have a compound PTSD, so you know, repeated childhood abuse, that sort of thing. So could you comment on how the MDMA-assisted therapy helps with hypervigilance symptoms in particular?
0: By the way, I do have the smartest fans in comedy, and I am quite proud of that. You guys are awesome. <laughs>
2: um, yeah. I think, um, well, maybe I it, it could illustrate. You know, so you're talking about the se- basic sense of safety, not being able to feel sa- Yeah. Um, I, maybe a good illustration would be about the first person in our first study um, who told us that she had been raped seven years before and she said, you know, I know I have a lot to be grateful for and feel good about. I survived, my kids are doing okay, my husband's supportive, but I can't feel any of that. And she had been in therapy for most of seven years. Um, And in her first MDMA session, before she went to the trauma, and this is also a good illustration of why we think it's good not to have an agenda, about what should happen when. But for her, the first experience was feeling all that. She suddenly could let all that in. She felt the gratitude of having survived. She felt the safety that was there for her in her life. And she said, at at the end of a couple hours of that, she said, you know, maybe now I have more of a platform to work from. Maybe now I can process the trauma. And then she went on and processed the trauma but as you're saying that first piece was really necessary for her to effectively process the trauma it seemed
3: yeah i think another thing um you know um, michael has been trained in internal family systems um which is um a way of working with the parts of ourselves you know often we hear people um talk about well one part of me wants to move to boulder but another part of me wants to just stay in asheville and and so in when you're looking at hypervigilance with especially the veterans but i think overall you could do this with anybody with ptsd very often there's the part that was the warrior was the person that was in iraq and the the part of them that that they feel like kept them safe and that part has not gotten the update on No, you are safe you're not there anymore and so some of the times part of the work is updating those other parts or you know the brain I mean the brain is obviously part of this into realizing you know that you are safe and so the MDMA also having that maybe during that session they have that experience of oh my god I am actually safe I'm living in the past and so you know, that's where also the present moment or like mindfulness comes in where people actually get to experience what it is like in this present moment. I'm not in Iraq. And so having that template from that session to go back into life, it, it's a new template and a new place to start.
2: And nowadays more people are moving from Boulder to Asheville than from Asheville to Boulder. <laughs>
6: Thank you all so much for coming. It's uh, fantastic to be able to listen to you speak. Um, I've got a question more about uh, the holotrophic breathing because I'm not terribly familiar with it. And I know we talked a lot in a lot of your researches uh, with MDMA and PTSD specifically. Um, Is there a specific uh, condition or environment where Holotrophic breathing is really beneficial. PTSD, depression, something of that nature. And do you see the benefits? Because I'm really interested in the fact that it's without a substance that you can you can in theory, I suppose, do this. I, again, I don't know very much but on your own. Um, is there benefits to that in conjunction, like after MDMA treatment? This may be outside of the research itself. I'm just more curious because I don't know a lot about it. Um, can you speak more about that and um, you know the applications of the holotrophic breathing, maybe in their interactions with MDMA? Treatment.
3: Um, yeah I think that um, holotropic breathwork would be great for integration and in fact for people who have when they are terminating from the study and they want to have another way to keep working we very often we send them to you know groups that we know are going on and it's not only having the the breathwork themselves but also having that community that understands what they're talking about because you know a lot of psychiatrists and therapists don't understand about psychedelic experiences and psychedelic therapy or MDMA therapy so when you go to the breathwork groups it, it can be something that is a familiar kind of thing you're talking about how, how you've accessed it and um, Yeah. I mean, I think breathwork, I mean, it's great for everything. It's really great for people who have had sexual abuse, but you want to go to uh, a group, a facilitator that you feel safe with. You'd want to have like a male and female, I think, be there, or at least feel safe with a facilitator. Um, We've had people who've had depression and um, PTSD that have come to our groups and anxiety I mean for anxiety disorders it's really great too um, but you know it, it takes a, it may take longer you may have to go you know monthly for a while to deal with some of the things that I've just mentioned
0: I think one of the exciting things about uh, the these holotropic groups that is that uh, what a way to what a great way to like meet new people and new friends i mean look if you're into cars go to a car show you'll make new friends that are interested in the things that you're interested in if it, if it can be really really hard if you came to my show you heard me say this again and again last night it can just be really hard for us to meet one another and um and a lot of us are like in the closet and i do believe this stuff is important so what a great inroad to like meet a few new people and and uh yeah so that's that's exciting let's do uh, we can do like one or two more i i I got to let these guys – we'll do two more. Can we do three more? Is that okay with you guys? Okay. Well, uh, three more and then – cool. Uh, Hi. Thanks for coming. Um, I uh, have a question
5: about if you guys accept someone into the MDMA treatment, is there protections for them? Like I – for example, I work for a nuclear power plant and the NRC dictates all of our like drug use and drug testing. And if I was accepted, was there there protection for me – you know against like if they found mdma in my system i know it doesn't stay in your system that long but we can get randomly tested and stuff like that so it's like
2: yeah we give people a wallet card that says i'm in a research study and i may it may cause me to an fda approved legal research study that may cause me to test positive for drugs of abuse hey can i have one of those cards (laughs) (laughs) we'll be selling those at the door
0: (laughs) Oh, what a great thing for my merch table. I thought this adult coloring book was pretty cool. I'll have to suggest
2: uh, that to Rick for a fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. That's
0: amazing.
4: <laughs> Thank you again. So um I was also wondering, kind of piggybacking on the holotropic breath work, I teach yoga down the street and a woman... Uh, named Harriet Nettles recently introduced me to trauma release therapy where you induce tremors in the body and it helps release emotions stored in the deep fascia and I've gone through like five sessions with her and it's been amazing because I've been using psychedelics for since I've been a teenager and cannabis uh, for like emotional therapeutic use and like physical stuff and uh, it was cool to be able to like you said do something that was not a substance outside of myself and it was amazing to like go through that process and feel the breakthrough several different times of like the vulnerability you have within yourself that you're like really tapping into that and i think it would be a really cool thing to be able to piggyback with the mdma research because it's not a verbal thing and you don't have to actually go back and revisit the trauma it's just like physical release and kind of like Dance, a static dance release, or something like that, but you're guided through the process, and it's really amazing because it takes like an hour. And each time I did it, it felt even better. And like the sense of euphoria afterwards was amazing. And that's something that I think you guys could definitely connect with because it's really prolific in terms of how you don't have to actually talk about. The issue that happened, and sometimes that's even more traumatic for people to go back and like have to relive that trauma. So it's a really cool um, thing to look into. And also, you were talking about plant uh, liberation of plants and stuff. Uh, this is kind of irrelevant to MDMA, but locally here in Asheville, on this Tuesday, the Asheville City Council is going to be voting on a resolution in support of medical cannabis. And you guys can find more information at, at yesncannabis.org.
2: Thank you for sharing that. You know, I haven't tried that technique, but it it makes a lot of sense. And
0: uh, I do want to say, if we're in a room and someone has to watch me dance, that might cause them PTSD, so it's a,
2: it is a tricky... Well, that's okay. We, we have a treatment for that. Uh, you know, in in the breathwork sessions, often that kind of thing happens with the body. Vibration starts happening. People are really encouraged to, to let their body do whatever it needs to do, and that the nonverbal part and the body part is such a powerful thing. And I do think, while I think psychedelics and holotropic breathwork or other methods like this are complementary, I do think, in our experience, holotropic breathwork does tend, in general, to bring more of the body stuff than than most psychedelic sessions and I think it's really valuable. And we do that in the MDMA sessions too. We encourage people to really let the energy come in their body. Sometimes we do some direct resistance body work in the MDMA sessions. More often we do some of that in the integration sessions. So we very much have that orientation with our, our approach to the MDMA therapy that uh, really encourages the body to do what it needs to do and it doesn't have to be about words at all great now Thank i gotta do push-ups buzzkill <laughs>
0: <That's
2: great. laughs> i i
0: well what's what's um what's interesting it seems like there is some archaeological evidence that our ancestors they find these oh like what was clearly like a fire pit and they'll find these like really well-worn circles around these grounds that are smoothed out and and they you go and you see some of these hunter-gatherer tribes now they're they're not using psych, or or maybe maybe they are, but um in in some cases, but they're for hours dancing themselves into like a stupor, into like this transcendental state. You can do this when running a marathon and and uh, anything else where you get like this runner's high, and and uh, and I think that this is really a big part of. Our evolutionary history that we are now missing out on. And I think that that gap in this experience is creating a lot of problems in our life, potentially. I mean, you know, this is all wild speculation, but um, I I do think this is part of why all of this is very important. Um, Oh, sorry, did you want to say something? No, go ahead.
2: Thanks. As you move into the phase three studies, is the focus still exclusive to PSD, or do hospice applications, or does panic disorder or anything else fall under the umbrella, or? Uh, well, it's, it's going to be specific for PTSD because that's the way the FDA works. Right, right, right. okay. Um, so, and we, you know, with limited resources from a small nonprofit, we're putting most of the effort into PTSD. There have been a couple other phase two studies with anxiety, with advanced illness, or Uh, social anxiety and autism but our thinking is we'll put the resources most of the resources in PTSD that's what the indication will be but then it'll be possible to use it off-label just like any drug you know that's one place the pharmaceutical industry is in uh, an ally I guess you would have to say that every time there's been an attempt to limit off-label use the pharmaceutical lobby goes bonkers so I think it's we're gonna it's gonna be possible to use it off label, and I maybe I should mention also maybe most of you know this, but you know we're talking to FDA about not that it would be a drug that you could pick up at the CVS, but that it o- could only be used in licensed MDMA clinics. Doesn't mean only physicians could use it; there would have to be a physician involved, but other you know any kind of therapist could be working there. But the idea that make sure it's used. By people who understand how to use it and do it in a safe, safe, helpful way. So it would be moving towards orphan drug status then more than likely? Or I'm sorry. It would be moving towards orphan drug status then more than likely? or uh, Well, it, it doesn't meet orphan drug because you have to have it for orphan drug status. My understanding is it has to be a disease with uh, below a certain oh, number of people right, per right, year, right. and PTSD is way beyond that. We are in the process right now, we've just applied for breakthrough. Designation, um, which I think we have a good chance of getting, which will expedite the FDA process to some extent. But then we're also going to apply, once phase three is underway, we're going to apply for expanded access, which we also think is a very good chance, um, in, which would mean it could be used outside of the research protocols during phase three, you know, a limited clinical use Uh, in people who have been trained by maps to use it outside the studies while the studies are still going on so we're trying for for any ways we can get it accessible to more people sooner thanks very much
0: so just as i'm wrapping up here we'll get a couple more words from these guys in closing um but i want to say that um uh, i'm so happy that you guys came out because i mean much of what i do uh, i mean this is i'm trying to find the people doing like the real workout and and i can put together shows and slip in a little bit of science here and there to trick people into hearing about the scary science stuff that sounds real boring and horrible and no one wants to hear about it and i know i can put together these comedy shows and and sell out and be turning away people it's fun and everything but i um and it's nice i'm able to do that and you know i i do love it but this this the reason why I have this podcast is, is because I believe this is what the real important stuff is, is actually finding the people that are really working to improve the world and communicate that to the public. I wish it was the other way around. I wish we were turning people away for this show and I, there's only 20 people at my stand up show because I think that what, uh, what these guys are doing is incredibly, incredibly important. And so, um, with that, I just want to say if people, um, if people do want to, uh, be more involved in and and uh, and by the way so thank you guys for coming out so it's not zero people because you guys are uh, fucking awesome uh but um if people want to get involved if people want to support maps do you have some ideas as to where uh what they could do
3: yeah maps needs a tremendous amount of money to make MDMA um a medicine that we can use so anything you can do as far as that would be great, um, or just volunteering, you know, um, Maps needs volunteers at all of the conferences that they do, and um,
0: Zendo, in Zendo, some, in, in yeah. many cases,
3: the Zendo is also a,
0: a harm reduction program where you mm-hmm. kind of st- uh, sit and yeah. e- even even just bringing water to people in a in a tent where people are having a difficult. Yeah, at Burning experience. Man,
3: Zendo is. Well, Zendo is a And bunch now you're of at an
0: awesome music festival too, so. <laughs>
3: Catharsis. Yeah, I was just about to say there are other festivals too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, say that again. Catharsis
4: is happening on the National Mall. It's the third annual free burn on the National Mall on the Washington uh, property that the Washington Monument is on, across from the White House. We had it right after the election um, on Veteran Day weekend. And uh, it was pretty awesome because there was a symposium and people were there late night, like talking about their psychedelic experiences and how they've healed through psychedelic experiences and st- Random people who lived in the D.C. area were just coming off the street, like doing their late night walk on the Smithsonian. And then they came into a tent and started disclosing their psychedelic experiences and not even knowing what they were going to get themselves into. So it's a really awesome experience. And it's like only eight hours away. If you guys want to like caravan up there, you can do um, offerings and bring your own gifts because it's a free burn, which is like the only free burn in existence that I know of which is the whole idea behind Burning Man. So it's an awesome place to plug in and get plugged in with the Zendo community and MAPS. And they talk about fundraising there and stuff like that.
0: And will there be any essential oils that can give me like a more powerful erection? Uh, because that's really the important...
2: So MAPS.org is the website. If you... you know and. You can join MAPS for quite a small amount of money. If you have more money you want to donate, that's always appreciated. And if you don't have money to donate right now, you can still sign up. You can access anything for free on the website, and you can sign up for free email updates. So part of the effort is to educate the public about the fact that this is serious research, and it makes sense, and it has the potential to help a lot of people. So helping to spread the word is a is a great benefit
0: so like my tour has been in the maps newsletter and along with a billion other things so you sign up for the maps newsletter you're like oh that's cool psychedelic comedy show there's a million different things like that that they're doing so it's free to sign up for the newsletter and like anything else and and uh, everything that they're doing with psychedelic dinners and all these other uh, kind of it's about getting people together and creating these networks and and growing and uh and so i really do believe this is very important Thank you very much to Michael and Annie Mithoffer, everybody. Give them a hand for their amazing work. And I'm, I'm sure after we all have a little bathroom break, they can probably stick around for a couple minutes to answer a question, not to put them on the spot. But um, I'm sure they're happy to meet you guys. And thank you guys so much for coming out. Thank you to the Mothlight, Asheville. You guys are awesome. And uh, Thank you, Shane,
2: day. for having us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, guys, got a return guest for next week, so I have some suggested listening. If you haven't heard to the episode with Philip Fernbach, we talked about the illusion of explanatory depth, or maybe you're the type of person that wants to listen again before this episode comes out. He has a new book out called The Knowledge Illusion why we never think alone and this is all about why we rush to judgments on things and think we know everything about everything when we don't know that much this is a lot of what this podcast is about illusion of explanatory depth get that concept in your mind it will open things up for you and it's a big one so again if you're new to listening to this podcast because you're like ooh. I'm into maps. This is a interesting sounding podcast. Maybe I'll check out more. I recommend going back to the beginning because we cover a lot of information and in build on past ideas. Each episode is made, so you don't have to do that, but it's just a gentle encouragement to do that. So check out the Philip Fernbach episode if you're feeling real ambitious. You can get his book, The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone, and you have one-week to read it quick and uh and you'll you'll know more but um anyway great book we're gonna have a a fantastic episode and thanks for supporting me on patreon and downloading audible and reviews and all of that good stuff helps me out so much those of you that listen all the way to the end you are my favorite and i want to say i just read a bunch of reviews and one was mediocre but the, but, the, but who cares the rest was so fantastic and uh, that gives me so much drive and gives me the passion to keep on working harder I hadn't checked reviews in like two weeks or a month or something like that I don't like obsessing over stuff like that but by golly all those wonderful words you guys write for me my goodness brings tears to my eyes and joy to my heart. So thank you very much for all the support, and we'll talk to you next week. Let's
4: say uh, Seinfeld was on an island, and he was blowing Boris Karloff.
2: What would, it, what would that be like?
6: <laughs> it might go something like this.
2: Oh, Mr. Karloff. I
6: loved you and Frankenstein and I love giving you a blow jump. Why, Mr Sonfeld, I'd love having you.